I remember a movie I saw about the American Indians and this, their horrible fight with the um, white settlers. I think somehow the church figured in there, but it was a... I, somebody might know what the name of the movie was. I don't remember the name of the movie, but I remember this was so vivid. There was this uh, great chief, and it was one of those, you know, just incredible Indian movies where, of course, you know the Indians are just going to get completely annihilated at the end, and it was sympathetic from the Indian point of view sort of movie. And all, all through this man's life, every so often he would have a vision of this, these sort of hills somewhere. And he just, the Indian never knew what the hills symbolized. And then he was, you know, there were the attrition and the, it was just worse and worse. And finally he came to a place and he looked out and he saw in, in the physical world this a picture that he'd seen in his mind many times. And in that moment he realized that was the place of his death. And he, he knew, and he sort of asked to be taken there because he, he knew that it was over for him and that he was going to die. But he said something so moving. He said, ah, he said, this picture I've been seeing all my life, it was the place of my death. He said, if I had only known that, he said, what a brave warrior I would have been. <laughs> and it was, it was a way of saying, another way of saying, of course, meaning... As long as he wasn't looking at those hits, he would survive. So what difference did it make? He would have had absolute courage. But the truth of it is, our place, our death place is known, you know? And whether we know that we're looking at it or not, um, what, what is there to be afraid of? When it, it's just going to come to us in the place and time it's going to come? I mean, I, I myself can't live that freely, but it's just a fact. We will either die or we won't. We'll either be injured or we won't. We'll be sick or we won't. And really no amount of anxiety all over the edges of it actually affected it at all. If anything, they do make it worse because it just kind of muddies the water of the clear flow of our energy. But I, I just I just love that line in that movie. And so just to say, I mean, people were looking at that building for many years of their lives and never thought of it as their tomb. But it turned out to be so. And uh, the, the, in, the issue about group karma is simply this, that it's very important at all times to live powerfully from with, with dynamic, deliberate magnetism because uh, then you won't get swept up in group karma. But if you don't have a powerful, deliberate magnetism of your own, you can um, get pushed in directions that you wouldn't otherwise go because there's nothing to mitigate it. Swami made that comment once about a plane crash. It wasn't everyone's karma to die, but some of them didn't have enough karma to live. So they got kind of swept up in the group. Of course, that's a way of saying it was their time to die, but still there was a, a an interesting little twist to it, which means that if a person's just not putting out enough magnetism, then nothing. But if you're really all the time just doing your best in your way, then you can relax completely, because <laughs> it'll just happen the way it happens, whatever it is. I wish we could really remember that at all times, but it does work. Oh, yeah. David remarked on that frequently. It went down. Nobody was trampled. Well, Master says America has very good karma. Master says America has very good karma. We have bad karma for the way we treated the Indians and the black people. And we're a little off track now with our excessive materialism. But he says fundamentally this country has very good karma. So it isn't our lot, he said, to be destroyed. It's our lot to be tested and strengthened. I, in the newsletter I wrote, not a very good letter, but at least I got these ideas out there, that Master said there would actually be three tests in the founding of America. The first was the Revolutionary War itself, when the people had the courage and the vision to declare their independence and then fight for it. You see, the Masters are not always pacifists, you know. I mean, sometimes war is simply necessary. The Master himself incarnated as Arjuna and as William the Conqueror, Two huge warriors who just, you know, butchered people. So it's too narrow a view of humanity to think that war will never happen on this planet at this time. But the American Revolution was the first, the Civil War was the second, and Master said the third is what's coming. And then after that, America will have proved itself. Just like, you know, what happens to individuals is a microcosm of what happens to nations, you know, as a the karma of the whole society. We're not we, we don't quite have the power of our own destiny really in our hands yet. 
we're not electing the right leaders, we're not making the right choices, we're not doing the right things, but we will because we have good karma, but we have to, we have to suffer a little bit more. You know, the, I've, I've been reading these novels about the Civil War, which have just really gripped my awareness as I get into them more because they're, they're, they're not great books, but they're well-written enough that you really get this picture that Lincoln knew that this was a holy mission to preserve the Union. And it was a holy mission to, to expunge the blight of slavery from the American um, mentality. And in order to do that, the Civil War, what, what really happened was it was so brutal. And where there had been this kind of, there had been a more gentlemanly attitude about war until uh, Lincoln got Grant in charge of the American forces and Sheridan and Sherman, you know. And, and Grant was, Grant understood that they, they had to win because he felt that same sense of divine purpose. And the only way that the South would never get up until they were pulverized. And that, until they were pulverized. And that to pulverize them meant to wage a ruthless war against them. And so they started uh, decimating the countryside and taking the crops and the houses and they didn't really blast the civilians, but they destroyed the whole civilization, really, just just powerfully. And Grant just, you know, fought really hard, and many people just hated them for it, north and south. But and but Lincoln just knew that it didn't matter what people thought; it was what had to be done. And uh, it it sort of was. It's like a, it's like Divine Mother's own consciousness in a very real sense that she looks out and sees that, you know, this is not working, you dear souls. You know, I, I, I wanted you to found this country for something else. And now you're just, you're just ruining it. You're ruining it with government. You're ruining it with taxes. You're ruining it with uh, taking away people's freedoms. You're ruining it with materialism, uh, with decadence. You know, you're, you're with arrogance. You're just not doing it. So we're going to just have to, we're going to have to conquer you and decimate a lot of what you are depending on in order for what's really supposed to happen to happen. And it really was exactly what Lincoln had to do to the South in order to just beat it down so it would give up. And Divine Mother is really conducting such an experiment on the whole planet at this time. I mean, the world cannot go on the way it's going. It just can't. It's just um, too terrible. Swamiji says all you have to do is listen to the music. And you can tell it's about to explode. Just the music just says it's about to explode. You listen to rap. You know, you happen to get trapped in the highway when somebody has that stuff on really loud like they do with their big thing. I mean, I, I have a very sensitive nervous system. I find it like a physical assault. I can, I can literally hardly stand it. And you see people just exposing themselves to it. You know, it's a, it's an, it's a hysteria. And it, it's going to go somewhere. It's just not going to... So this, like this, is sort of, I feel very, um, I'm naive. I mean, I, I'm not looking forward to suffering, but in a sense, it's like, well, let's get on with it. That's sort of what Swami's attitude is. It's like he hope, he keeps hoping this is it because he feels in a sense that the longer it delays, the worse it gets. Let's just get on with it. You know, this is going to happen. And therefore, let's just have it happen now, whatever it might be. And Master spoke of war, um, social collapse, economic catastrophe, and uh, earth catastrophe. That's pretty much story, isn't it? But I don't think it'll happen to us necessarily because we're, I, I mean, I, I don't like to say that in an arrogant way, but it's not our world. We have a different job, you know? That's how we feel. But I don't mean that it'll, it won't happen to us, that it won't touch us. That would be just absurd. Of course it will touch us. It may touch us brutally. But we have a different job. Our job is to plant the seeds of the future and to witness for the light. But that's going to be a really hard job because hmm, when people are suffering and frightening, frightened, it's, it's frightening and painful. So, here we are. You just meet them where you're at. You just meet them where you're at. Yeah. And that's, to me it's like the, our image is just one of just calm courage just calm courage and compassion just like soldiers on the battlefield i was thinking like the attitude we have to have is as if we were in the middle of a war 
how would we want to behave in the middle of that war? Calm courage. Just not shrinking from what needs to be done and just going forward and doing it. Whether that's just in our prayers or whatever. Your prayers have to be very courageous too. You have to, you have to be able to face fierce of the circumstances and visualize light going into it. And you also have to be detached enough to pray just for God's will instead of to try to be praying um, against what frightens us. And it's very, it's very tricky. And it is frightening. You know, I, I remember when we had the little tiny earthquake here, I was extremely impressed by how much it scared me. You know, in the 25 seconds that it happened, I was not chanting Om Guru, you know? <laughs> I mean, it occurred to me a few minutes later, but not in the moment. I was just thinking, oh my God, but not in a very devotional way. <laughs> I don't know, Jyotish was advising people at the village not to watch very much. He was saying, why fill your mind with it? He said, just know enough and know that help is needed. I, I didn't say that because people's temperaments are different. Yeah, that's what Everyone there? Yeah. Well, you know, these are, America comes through at moments like this. And, and that's what will really, that's what will happen is when catastrophe strikes and we're forced to go back to the the stuff of which we are made, we will discover that we're made of very fine stuff. It's a very fine country. People in this country have very high values and very good consciousness. And yeah, that's exactly right. That is what happens. And people remember it well. I heard the most remarkable interview on television, on radio, of a soldier. And he just said simply that he really would go, wanted to go back to the war. He was in Vietnam because of the great love that you receive in circumstances like that. And he was talking just about the situation being so intense, everything was stripped away, and all that was left was this real, you know, man-to-man power of the soul. It was a very honest and an interesting statement. That's something. But then I think I think great hard times will awaken people to what's really important. That's the theory and presumably development. And the media above all repels it. But when it really came right down to it, what else could they say? So you see, that's how it all sort of ends up turning itself around. Because these are the I mean th- that very form is one of the forms that's taking God away from us so much as a culture, not away from people's hearts, but us from our public voice. So that if that public voice goes back to a more genuine response will be great. It might even be worth the price. What else are you going to do in times like that? You watch the World Trade Center turn it vaporize in front of your eyes. You, you know, just and, and 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 with a force that's so far beyond our control. You know, hijacking airplanes and bashing into buildings. How are you going to stop stuff like that? You just you just really do feel you feel like a little ant. In the hands of the divine. And there you are. I bless them for the courage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was wild. But you know, it's <laughs> it's a crazy world. We are their enemy in their minds. You know, I don't think anybody rejoiced when we dropped the atom bombs on Japan. But there was a certain rejoicing in the victory that it brought, and the end of the war that it brought. You know, it saved thousands of American lives by killing the Japanese. It's a very peculiar, you can't, you can't make it work in this world. And if you try to, the equations just never works out. You have to go, you have to transcend it, you go crazy. But yeah, there's something really sick about that culture. They, they don't have very good calmness. I'm not speaking of any individuals, you know, I have nothing against Palestinians per se, but I'm, I'm sure that I know many who are very nice. I know a few that are wonderful people, but I'm sure many of them are wonderful people, but there's a consciousness there that they're already in misery, and this is certainly not going to help. 
That's a crazy situation. But you see how the lessons are already being learned? They're already being talked about. Yeah. Because the Palestinian, Israeli, American, it's a hopeless conflict. You go over there with the best intentions in the world and you have a whole generation of Palestinians, you, who have no hope and are quite willing to just blow themselves to bits for the cause because why not? I mean, and they, were, they were incarnated to do it. You have to also realize that they have the right consciousness for the situation. They were born to be those kinds of souls. It's like a certain number of demons. There's a quota of immigrants onto this planet from the demonic sphere who are here to blow it to bits. You can go in there with all the goodwill in the world and it was not going to do any good. So it, but that's why we're so important. I mean, I sort of thought like, you know, the best thing we can do is just keep running our classes. <laughs> just teach a few more people how to meditate. Because that's the only answer. People just have to see reality from a different point of view. From, because from where they're sitting, if you're sitting on the level of this is my land, no, it's mine. You know, I've always been really prejudiced in favor of the Jews. I couldn't help it. And then Swami just pointed out to me that really all that Israel did was went in there and grabbed the land. You know, it was just a land grab, a normal sort of land grab. It happens all the time in history. You know, property countries are always changing hands because somebody comes in and takes it. It was no, a no more spiritual nor unspiritual thing. It was just what they did. The Palestinians really, in my opinion, are worse because they refuse to adjust to reality. You know, once things have happened, you have to adjust. You can't just live in the past forever. But the Israelis were not really that good. They just moved in and then the, and then the Palestinians have just dug in their fields because it's just their job. <laughs> it's their job to be the uh, sort of the violent wedge, or maybe it's not the Palestinians, I'm not trying to speak against them, but there's there's a sense of the violent wedge It's coming from many places. And it's their job. You know, we don't know. Everyone assumes it's coming from that. Well, it's partly, it's partly true. I mean, I, it's partly true, it's partly not true. There are objective values. There are divine laws. And America's far more in tune with divine law than terrorists, you know, even if we have our shortcomings. Now, what's valid about what she's saying is that isn't it fascinating how delusion grabs people and they'll use the same words against us and don't see reality because that's just the level of consciousness they're on. So that's valid. But there is a, and this isn't what Helen was doing, but there is a tendency to say, oh, well, we're bad too. And it isn't, it isn't so at all. And it's, it's profoundly undermining. Patriotism has a real place, and, and uh, honor and pride in what we are. And America has a great deal to be proud of, and America is a great country. It doesn't mean we're without flaws, but we are a great country. We have, we have done something with this country in terms of, uh, we haven't done it perfectly, but we've, we've done in terms of valuing human beings and freedom and destroying the oppression and opening opportunity. I mean, we've done a great thing in this country. There's nothing like it anywhere. It never has been. It, it, it was a revolution. You sort of read just a little bit of history and you appreciate that. And, and even though we have been massive armies, we're not terrorists. We never have been. Even though we have CIA people who've carried out assassinations, we're still not terrorists. Um, but, they're all God's children. And the people who perpetuate, perpetrate things like this, that's why I was saying, you know, whatever the consciousness of the people who did it, some of them probably genuinely think they're doing a good thing for the reasons that you're saying. Others are just evil. Uh, Master said there's a great difference. He, he, he drew a great distinction between Hitler and Stalin. He said Hitler was the instrument of the, of the karma of the people, both the Germans and the Jews. And he wasn't personally responsible for what happened. He was just the instrument of the karma. I mean, he, he didn't get a lot of good karma for it, but he, he didn't get on a personal level the karma of the situation the way you would think he would. But Master said Stalin did, that Stalin was personally responsible for what he did. So it's really interesting. So even though you can see, and he said Stalin was much worse than Hitler, it's just not known. But uh, he said, in fact, Hitler was a Boy Scout compared to Stalin, is how he described it. But uh, 
So it depends. God reads the heart. If you're completely deluded, but you think you're doing a good thing, God reads your intentions, no matter how bizarre they might be. But he, whatever's really in your heart is what's real. So that all we need to do is that. So we're going to Rama being raised from the dead. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah, both of them. It was so odd. Just went straight there. Yeah. It melted it. Just to speak up a little, John. My wife, well, that's the story of if you know what your death place looks like, why should you be afraid? Yeah. <laughs> All right, anything else? Okay. It was, I found this chapter is amazingly apt for what happened today. I mean, I suppose everything always is. Um, so, we start out with uh, Sri Yukteswar interpreting the Christian Bible and the story of Lazarus. And it, it's, I mean, it's interesting in itself, the way he describes it, but it's also just, um, when I first read Autobiography of a Yogi, I was really impressed by how Christian the book is, how many references there are to the teachings of Jesus. And you, we've sort of grown used to this... Um, relationship that we see on our altar all the time. But you also have to appreciate that in 1946, when this book came out, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't such a, a simple cross-pollination. So for um, Paramhansa Yogananda to have his guru, Sri Yukteswar, describing the story of Lazarus and interpreting the New Testament is really a little shocking. And it was, it was very bold. And you have to appreciate that not everyone appreciated Yogananda. I mean, there were quite a few people who did not appreciate him at all for daring, you know, things like this, that because there was such a simple, narrow idea of this. And so then, um, also the, what would he say? Just simply defining the Son of God when uh, Christ would use that phrase as, as the Christ consciousness. It was just such a simple way. Whenever he would speak, when you, if you read the, the Christian Bible and every time you see the Son of God, he's referring to Christ consciousness, the offspring of the Spirit, the expression of the Spirit. It's just such a simple um, interpretation. So Master like gives you uh, practically the whole key to the New Testament in just one paragraph here. If you're really looking for it and really looking to understand the New Testament, you can take Sri Teshwar's words and just go right into it. So it's a, really a beautiful part there. Then he tells us this incredible story about his friend Rama dying and him having to deal with the corpse and and Sri Keshwar I was so um, when he talks about how Lahiri was just so amused by the fact that Rama had died and just was sort of laughing at the fact that Rama had died and of course he was going to resurrect him but still I, I was thinking about today how the masters regard death so differently. You know, here, I mean, Sri Yukteswar, of course, is also telling the story in a way that makes it more dramatic. But in, in the eyes of the masters, death just doesn't mean anything at all. I know when Swamiji was asked once about uh, the threat of nuclear catastrophe, and this individual was trying to get Swamiji extremely agitated about, and they had, uh, this was during the nuclear initiative, was it 10 or 20 years ago? And uh, the people were going around and they had these charts of telling you what would happen to all the people in concentric circles out from the epicenter, you know, which ones would be vaporized, which would be just merely turned to ash, you know, which ones would be melted. I mean, it was very, very vivid. And uh, it was all based on your agitation about all of that happening. And I'll never forget Swami just looking across and saying, look, a hundred years from now, virtually everyone who's on this planet will be gone, he said. And whether we dribble out a few at a time or all go out at once, he said, it really won't make a lot of difference. And it, it really is so when you just see this world as a stage on the journey. 
that where death is inevitable. Of course, we prefer to be able to get ready for it. I know when Swamiji was talking very sweetly to a friend whose close friend had cancer, and the friend was feeling sad at the impending death, uh, the inevitable impending death of that person. Swami just said so quietly, he said, well, at least now you have time to get used to it. He said he could have just gotten in a car and driven off and never come back again. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the difficulty of what happened today, to come back to that, is not just that they die, is that nobody had any time to get ready for it. Either the people who are dying or the people who are left behind. You know, just in, in a second, it all turned over. And that's really the, the, the bigger tragedy of it, is the incredible need to meet your karma with so much force unexpectedly. Swamiji always describes that a karmic test is like a wave of energy of a certain magnitude. And he said, in any wave of energy like that, if you give it enough time, it gradually dissipates. You know, when the Oklahoma City building was bombed, it was so intense. But now it's been a long time, and even the people who are part of it, time has passed, and whereas the energy went to here that day, it's now down around this level. And what happens with us is oftentimes when the, when the energy is this high of the test, we just hide from it. And we wait until it dissipates to a point where we can finally overcome it. And we consider that overcoming it. And it is in a sense. But Swamiji says, if when the wave is at its height, we generate enough energy to meet it, he said, said, then we can really expiate the karma completely. Whereas now, you only expiate it at this height, which means it's going to have to come back until you get this bigger thing. So he, uh, right after the um, verdict in the Bertolucci trial, back in whenever that was, 97 or something, when the jury, much to our complete astonishment, ruled against us and, uh, you know, declared officially that Ananda was scum and Priyananda was worse. Um, It happened like on a Friday, and on Sunday morning, Swamiji called. He must have been in Europe. He was in Europe. And he said, why don't you all he said, fly in from all the colonies, close all the businesses, close the schools and take the children, and at nine in the morning be out in front of that courthouse protesting that verdict of injustice. And uh, it was a very, very daring suggestion. It's the only time he's ever suggested we demonstrate. And uh, we were so exhausted and so stunned by what had happened that we just couldn't relate to it. And it was Sunday morning and, you know, the call came into me and I'm calling people around and just trying to get people to relate to it. They hadn't even uh, finished. The jury was still sitting because they had the various penalty phases and so on. And nobody could relate to it. That's about the only thing I can say. <clears throat> Finally, sort of a determination was made, well, we just don't dare do it while the jury's still sitting because blah, 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 blah. So it was agreed after everything was over, then we revisited it. And it finally turned into, essentially, Palo Alto and a few others actually going down to the courthouse. But as the years have passed and I've reflected on it, it now it becomes so obvious to me, and I, I don't know why we couldn't say it at the time. We've been hit with this and just made it like that. And I think now, if we had, everything might have been different. Because instead, what we did is we kind of sat around and kind of waited for the energy to dissipate and kind of finally got ourselves above it. Because we just didn't know how to just turn with all this power at the moment that it was coming. And Swami, I, he must have known we couldn't do it. I never heard him refer to it very often after that. It was just, he said, well, think about it, is what he said. And he, when he saw that he couldn't really win us to the cause of it. It was quite something, but I, I remember it, and I actually have made a little cause now about telling a lot of people about that, because most people didn't even know that it was an option. And, we, and, and it's very important, because we missed an extraordinary opportunity, and I think as a result of that, we suffered a great deal. Exactly. But nonetheless, the mere fact that he recommended it is something to not forget. So the next time the wave comes, we'll remember principle 
of meeting it with no, I don't feel I don't blame him for it. Nor does he. That's why I say he doesn't never heard him bring it up again. But he does know that that he, he made a suggestion to see what we would do. And we didn't. <laughs> but it's it's important to remember it that way. Mm-hmm. It was still very good and it really changed our karma a great deal. When we find that, and that's why the SRF thing was all an outgrowth of the same stuff. The whole SRF thing was an outgrowth of the same thing, of just really saying, meet the karma head on like that, instead of just waiting for the energy to dissipate, stand up to it with strength. It's a very important principle, this wave issue. When, you, when something hits you really hard and you have a tendency to take a tranquilizer and go to bed, you know, think instead, if I can look this right in the eye and, and master it in this moment, then I can dissipate a lot of this karma. Otherwise, I just am going to set myself up to have to hit it again. Because you're never going to, it's not that you're going to get away from it. You know, you can, you can outlast it, but that one, that's not the same as conquering it. Conquering it is, is having more joy than it has power to take away your joy. Right? This, this, yes. I really don't know. Well, I'm not sure that's wrong, Vivian, because we're dealing with terrorists. You know, you, you're not, we're not just going to be able to sit down and say, now be nice. And we're not going to be able to go over and say, oh, we love you. It's just, you know, you're, you're really dealing with crazy people who will hurt us. So it's not, it's not at all clear cut to me what is the right response. I mean, Hitler's a great example where we waited, you know, waited a long time and let him take over a lot of Europe before anybody stood up to him. Churchill alone was standing up to Hitler. I, was that right? You know, this was bar- bar- barbarism. We're dealing with barbarism. Is it right to let barbarians rule you? That's not necessarily courage or even righteousness. Master was William the Conqueror. Master said that. Uh, it, Master said it was he. Master said it was he himself who put the thought into Harry Truman's mind to go into the Korean War. That's quite a statement. You know that Yogananda recommended to Truman through the ether, I don't know how that means, but that was his statement. Because uh, he knew it was very important to defend against communism. Because communism is atheistic and barbarous. And we can't just stand back. I mean, look what happened. Not that the Vietnam War was, was clean or clear, but look what happened when the communists took over. I mean, it was, it was uh, horrific. Now, that doesn't mean that we should have fought that war. I don't even know enough to know whether we should or not. But this is, a, this is a world of very mixed values. It's not a world, and even um, Master said that Mahatma Gandhi was able to do what he did because the English are fundamentally gentlemen. He said if, if, if Mahatma Gandhi had done that in front of the Nazis, they would have just mowed him down and that would have been the end of it. So he could meet the British with that kind of energy because the British were refined enough for him to do it. And the British were pretty scummy. I mean, they did a lot of really terrible things. But fundamentally, they were not barbarians. And so when faced with honorable, unarmed people, they couldn't shoot them. But there are many cultures who would just shoot them and just think the more fool of you for not having weapons, that's the end of it. So what is right in that situation? Dharma is very complicated. Also, many people are born to be kshatriyas in the truest sense, in the, in the traditional sense. They are born to make war. It's upward-moving progress for them to make war. You see, that's the trouble with this planet, is that there are people who have just risen enough to be conscious enough to love this country and be willing to die for it. And that's as opposed to just thinking about themselves and taking what they can. So they're expanding because they're going to go out and shoot the enemy and be killed. Right? And for us to say, no, no, you can't do that. Uh, that's not necessarily right because that is their next step they need to die for the cause they believe in now for people like us for the most part but I'm not saying that no one of us should be a soldier because it could be the right thing for many of us to be soldiers in the right cause it may be, or it may just be there's no possibility I simply couldn't do it I will be killed first I could never raise you know I could never for any cause act in violence toward anyone else because it, for me it's not expansive it's backwards you know I, I, I'm not being a male and not being that young anymore I probably won't have to make the choice so I don't you know I don't know but I respect it so it's tricky we can't impose a Brahmin consciousness on the whole world that's why I say our job is different 
Our job is to witness for the light and project the light so that the kshatras can be honorable, if they need to be honorable. No, I don't know whether they should find the terrorists and bomb the heck out of them or just beef up the security in the airport. I'm glad it's not my decision. Did you have a time? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very subtle situation. And that's where we're just trying to project light, project light. Light has its own intelligence. Be calm, be courageous, be supportive. When Swamiji, this was not nearly as difficult a situation, but when we were in the midst of the trial and these people were being so terrible to us, horrible. Swamiji said he prayed and his prayer was to Babaji, why are you doing this to me, was the natural prayer. And he heard, inwardly heard Babaji say, they're all my children. (laughs) You know, God loves the terrorist as much as he loves the saint. He weeps for the terrorist because the terrorist is creating so much suffering for himself. Um, but he's no less divine. It's very awkward. It was really hard when his friend was dead to not think he was dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, too, that, that Lahiri knew that Lahiri had to give Sri Yukteswar something tangible to give him, to be able to ground his faith in something tangible. You know, just the, he had to have something in his hand that he could do. And Lahiri knew that. I mean, he teased Sri Yukteswar about it, but nonetheless, it was it, like the spirit had to come through an instrument. And it's just sort of an example of the fact the spirit always has to come through some instrument. And it's not the instrument, it's the spirit flowing through it, but still, our minds, it's very hard for our minds to grasp. We shouldn't um, be too quick to discard the helpful things that we do. You know, Sister Gyanamata, when after Master came to visit her she, in, in the spot where he'd stood in the room, she put a vase of orange flowers there and kept it there the whole rest of the time she lived in the house because she, she just wanted to ground her remembrance of him in something tangible. And sometimes we scoff too much at the symbols of things and think that we can move past them or we don't need them, but um, we do so at our peril because the, the mind easily slips away and really doesn't have the same strength without something to focus on. And the Sri Yukteswar had to have those drops of oil to focus on before he could really hold the thought that Lahiri had promised he would be well. But it was really, you know, the faith that Lahiri had promised that gave that oil power. It was just castor oil. But Yukteswar just going and sitting there, he didn't carry with him the faith that Lahiri could carry until he was able to, to ground it in something specific. And so, I mean, I think little talismans and spiritual symbols and little rituals and things like that have a great usefulness for us and we should never think ourselves above them if we forget otherwise. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's also just this wonderful, I mean, he's been dead for however long he's been dead since the 15 or 16 hours or whatever it is. And then he says he saw Lahiri in a blaze of light. And Lahiri said, wake up, come back. It's sort of like he'd gone to the astral world and Lahiri just went to get him. Uh, Master tells that story, or I think Swami tells a story about Master bringing someone else back from the dead. That's the story of Lazarus, where all this starts. You know, Lazarus was four days in the astral world, and Jesus just went and found him. Oh, wait, you're not finished. You're in the wrong place. You have to come back here, and all of a sudden you wake up in your body again. It's so, the whole life-death thing is so fluid, the way it's described here, and so much subject to, to other laws. That's why I was saying it was related today, because it was all about death. Here we're just hearing, he goes off to the outer world, the master brings him back. It's just very odd things happen. This, that movie, Life After Life, I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. It's a documentary, it's extremely interesting. It was done by Ralph Moody, who wrote, Dr. Moody, who wrote the book, Life After Life. There's a film. If you haven't seen it, it's really worth seeing. And there's a one story about, in there, they interview all these people who, who died and came back. Daniel Brinkley is interviewed, and then they interview, they interview this Russian who was murdered by the KGB. <laughs> and uh, he was dead for four days. And just uh, sort of his body was dead, and he floated all around the hospital. And um, among other things, he, he found he, there was this little girl, very young girl, like months old, who kept crying and crying, and no one knew why she was crying. And he, he 
communicated with her knows that she had a hairline fracture in her hip bone and nobody was able to figure it out because she was just an infant. So among the things he did was after he came back, he told the doctors what was wrong with her and they x-rayed and found out. That was part of how they, he proved that it really happened. But he talked about coming back to consciousness and he was in the morgue. You know, he was in the morgue with a sheet over him and he was back in his body all of a sudden. And he had a real problem because he couldn't move. I think he was paralyzed. And I think he couldn't, like, make it clear that he was back. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he started blowing on the sheet, you know, <laughs> which was over his face. Pardon me? Yeah, he scared someone to death. Yeah, blowing on the sheet because it was he couldn't he couldn't move any part of his body, so he started blowing on the sheet until someone noticed that dead people don't blow on the sheets. But it was again, it's just it was it's much more fluid. I mean, most people just die and don't come back. So. That the Russian man did. Yeah, he was going out to the end of the yeah <laughs> yeah what is death that's master's wonderful words we have a funeral on this side and they have a celebration on the other side we have a celebration on this side and they have a funeral on the other side master said which is the real one and that's it's exceedingly important I mean in light of today's events and it's exceedingly important if in fact we're going to have more cataclysmic things that can result in a lot more people dying See, one of our big problems in this country is we don't, we've forgotten everything about death. So when people die, we just kind of go berserk. We don't know what to do with it. The little tiny bit of experience I've had with death is that if anybody is standing around who isn't totally freaked out, it's a tremendous help to all the others. You know? Just, just, if you're just there and you're just not inherently freaked out, just people are dying. You know? This person is dying. It's just not so bad. They're dying, so... Just and then it causes other people to say, "Oh, yeah, of course, we just die," because because we know the soul knows, but we're just in such a. Um, I was trying to write out for the um, physicians, and they met the uh, nursing home where my father lives. I was trying to write out a letter at, at his own physician's recommendation, fortunately, because he's a good doctor. Just basically, and the phrase that I had picked up from somebody else. If a life-threatening situation occurs to my 82-year-old father who has advanced Alzheimer's, you know, if a life-threatening situation occurs, do not treat it as a medical emergency. It is not a medical emergency, the fact that he's dying. You know, we don't have to call 911 and put him on a gurney and rush him to the hospital and, you know, fill him full of things. It's just, it's not a medical issue. He's just dying. Yeah. And it's just it's a very simple fact, but we treat it like well, when people start to die, we call the paramedics. You know, you should call the priest. I mean, not always, but often. Yes, like that. Uh huh. I believe they did. I don't think you have as many people trained in CPR then as you do now, so I don't think they all rushed off and did it. But you can ask, you can put a do not resuscitate the DNR order on it. Which means if your heart stops, you stop breathing, just leave me alone. Right. And yes, it's quite... depends. You know, if it's a four-year-old child who's in a swimming pool, if it's an 82-year-old man with Alzheimer's, there's a great deal of difference in the medical profession doesn't always make a distinction. And still, what will happen is meant to be. But much of it is intuition in the moment. You know, just what is really trying to happen. Remember the story in the other chapter about Roma when she had the heart attack? And, you know, they wanted to take her to the hospital to rush to get to the doctor. And she said, don't bother. I'm going to be gone by the time the doctor gets here. You know, it was her time to go, and she just wanted to be allowed to go. And sometimes that's just the way it really ought to be. And that's what this story about Rama is. It's an extremely important story. And he couples it with Lazarus just to sort of help us break. I mean, when you read the um, Gita commentary of Masters, pages and pages and pages at the beginning are all about death. Because death is really the big issue. If you can kind of sort out death, you've kind of sorted out a lot of stuff. Because death is the gigantic um, clue. It's the great big raisin in the middle of the path, you know, the, the breadcrumb right in the middle of the path, showing us the right way. Because death happens, everything else is really suspicious, right? <laughs> um, so... Uh, what am I? So in the, in the Gita commentary, Master spends a lot of energy in it, and then he, you know, he brings it up here, Kashi reborn and rediscovered. You know, even the fawn dying. 
Because if you just come to peace with the fact that something really different is going on here, and, and then, then you can relax about everything else. And it, it, is, it is one of the facts that makes our culture so weird, is that we are so absolutely out of sync about death. Death is a medical emergency. It has to be handled by professionals. You know, we just don't touch it. We don't, we don't, uh, our, our, our people don't die at home. And when they, when they are dead, we phone somebody who, who comes in and you know, discreetly carries them away. And the next time we see them, they're all cleaned up again. Where, you know, in many cultures, most cultures, the people who love the person deal with the body. It's part of what you know how to do. You know how to deal with dead people because you just are there. Your grandmother died, your uncle died, your aunt died, maybe your baby sister died, and you dealt with it instead of just closing your eyes and pretending it's never going to happen. So maybe if a lot of death happens around us, we'll all catch on. So it's very, it behooves us as devotees to just look it right in the face and to whatever fears we have to just keep after them, remembering stories like this. Okay? Oh, yes, of course, it's okay to grieve because, gosh, it's a shame. You know, they used to be here and now they're not here anymore. We often grieve for the beautiful things lost, but you have to grieve in the right way. If excessive grief is, is selfish because it inhibits the person's ability to go forward. Because if they loved you and you love them and you're continually unhappy, a piece of them worries about that. And if they really, if they really are close. So you have to also have courage and go forward. I know that there was a story about a, uh, a man who died, a young man who died in the war, and then he was talking to his family through, or through his sister, through intuition, and um, she was visiting his grave, and she would meet him there, but she was excessively grief-stricken, and he said quite simply, if you don't stop grieving like this, I'm not going to be able to come back here anymore. Because if you, if you impose that upon me, I'm not going to be able to be with you. You've got to stop leaving. It's a very interesting statement because he had to protect himself from it, you see. If her consciousness was free, he could relate to it. But if she kept pulling him back down, then he was going to have to turn away from her. Just, it's very human. It's very natural. It would be the same way you would respond. And if you're just going to be so negative, I don't want to be with you anymore. You've got to pull yourself together or else I have to go away. Uh-huh. Just, it just for those of you who don't know, he was a man about 50 years old who went out jogging and he was running along and he said to his running partner, I don't feel so well, and he sat down and died. Heart stopped. The very, but he's a very saintly man, extremely saintly. I know Shiv- Shivani just said, we kept him a little too long. Is that she put it? You know, when his wife was notified, I mean, the, if he hadn't had a, a lovely wife who was grief-stricken, it would have just been a very happy experience. But you were always, between your rejoicing and the fact that he died such, so beautifully, you always had to remember that she was so sad. But when they called her and she was not very far away and she came out onto the road and what she said without even thinking, she kept saying, David, where are you? Where are you? That was what that she kept saying to him. Where are you, David? Where are you? I odd that that would just be the comment, you know, because she could tell that he, he was gone. Where, where did you go? Where are you? And she then she began to feel him. You know, and realized that well, he was just here. That's where he was. But still, of course, it was very hard. I shouldn't have any warning. He went out running and never came back. There was a little uh, official confusion with the officials, which is why he had to stay in the temple so long. (laughs) Because he was American, it was Italy, it was just a little confusing, they didn't know what to do. And the casket? Uh Well, he'd been around for a little while, so at least it wasn't instantaneously. It wasn't the first thing he did was get rid of him. Well, yeah, they were cremating him. When Hanel died at Ananda village, he was an old man. They just uh, put him in a box and put him in the back of a truck and took him over to the crematorium. <laughs> I mean, we did it ourselves. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, 
Masters has some wonderful paragraphs in the middle of the, just before this chapter ends, when he talks about, um, about, he, he really is talking about the folly of war and, and conflict. And he talks about uh, that, just the universal nature of mankind. And he, he has some wonderful paragraphs here. And it's a very, it was a very interesting balance because on the one hand, you know, I've been talking, and I have to say it honestly, you know, war seems to have a place in our society. Not, it's a peculiar thing to say, because it really doesn't, but it does. And yet at the same time, the vision that Master wants us to always see is this one of peace and brotherhood and unity, because that's really where our culture is going. And that is the image that, our, that, our, that we need to hold. And so we have this very delicate balancing act between just recognizing the flow of energy that's going to happen and recognizing our responsibility to keep a vision of something else. And, and very often through this book, Master talks about um, the, uh, the necessity for world brotherhood and the necessity for harmony and the folly of war. And even when he talks about Babaji, you know, helping us, he talks about the, the idiot, the lunacy of race hatred and wars and the master just speaks emphatically against that whole state of consciousness and, and says that self-realization has come to end it and Kriya has come to end it and that he emphasizes, and this is in the next chapter too when we go on to talk about Babaji and when he talks about Lahiri too, that Kriya is the, is the answer. And it's just, it's very, it's very, very important because we as Kriya yogis and as devotees have to realize that we are profoundly politically active. You know, we are, we are the activists on the, at, the, at the nth degree because we are really putting into motion the antidote to war and violence, which is the direct perception of divinity and the shared divinity. And how then can you even consider murdering someone or killing them or trying to take away from them or not sharing with them? It's all God's children. It just, it would make no sense at all, but it has to be more than just an idea. It has to be more than an affirmation. It has to be a direct experience. And so he talks about Lahiri, and then the following chapter he talks about Babaji and this sort of great mission that these great masters had, and, and Babaji just maintaining his relationship with the planet for all time. Babaji in communion with Christ is planning the spiritual salvation of our age. And it's about Kriya Yoga, it's about meditation, it's also actually about community. It's about pretty much everything we're doing. We are the little team here. You know, we're not the only team, but like, you know, these are our guys. <laughs> we're, we're their people. And we came here to do their story. And so every word that's written in here about how the problems of this world are going to be solved, this is our manual. This is our manual for our own personal lives, and this is our manual also for how we conduct ourselves in the world. It's, it's exceedingly important to read it that way, and not to read it as if this is about somebody else. This isn't about somebody else. This is about me and about you. I mean, to the extent to which you want to make it so, but all of you, obviously, are making it to a very great extent, really, what you're about. You know, we are the solution. That's not egoic, that's a responsibility. And we just have to walk every day in the power of that light with a very conscious awareness of Babaji, and a very conscious awareness of Lahiri Mahashaya, and a very conscious awareness of Kriya, and discipleship, and everything else that characterizes our lives, and, and really do it very dynamically as a service. You know, every, every thought that we have that lifts us toward this kind of awareness is a very specific service. Haridas said once so charmingly, he said, you know, he said, it's a good thing that, so, that my self-realization will help us lift the word, world, because if I was just doing it for me, I just wouldn't bother. <laughs> Which, of course, is a sign of what a great soul he is. But it is an incentive, really. Because, you know, all of us have a deep desire to help others, and we have very compassionate natures. That's why watching the building collapse and thousands of people die, it, it affects us. You know, the, uh, the terrorist sympathizers are rejoicing, but we're not rejoicing, and we're not rejoicing even when the terrorists 
rejoice because we know that they're doing a terrible thing for themselves. So there's just this compassion, this, this sort of um, overwhelming compassion. And it, it also is our salvation to realize that we are um, we are doing something that really matters. Not as our own selves, but as, our, as agents for these great avatars. And you have this wonderful story, the whole story of Babaji. I'm going to just finish up quickly here right now. You know, these two stories that nobody ever forgets about the disciple for whom Babaji touched with the flaming torch and he was burned. And would you rather have seen him burned up into ashes in front of you? And now I've saved him from that karma. But there's also an incredible story in there. Because, believe me, every time something bad happens to you, Babaji has picked up a flaming brand and touched you on the arm. You know, because everything that happens is universal and the masters are there. Something awful happens in your life, just say, well, would I rather have been burned to ashes right in this moment? No, much better to have had this terrible wound put on my shoulder by the masters. And so the, these things can be very, very practical. And then you can pray to Babaji to put his hand on you and cure it right up. In other words, meet the way of this what I was talking about at the beginning. You know? And then the other story of the disciple to whom Babaji just said, well, jump then. You know, and just without hesitation, he just threw himself off the cliff. I mean, so many levels of complete determination and understanding that nothing matters but God realization. Complete and absolute faith in Babaji without any hesitation. This is what you want me to do. This is what I shall do. You know? And then once again, Babaji just brings him back to life. As it happens in that case, he brought him back to life in the same body. You know, and the disciples are dutifully bringing the mangled body up. I mean, by this time, they must have kind of gotten used to this sort of thing. That's what I was saying. There was so much in these chapters about death, you know, on, on today. I mean, not all the chapters are about death. Two penniless boys, two penniless boys in Brindavan, nobody dies, you know. They just go and eat mangoes and things like that. But today, both our chapters, people are dying left and right. But uh, the masters are also just, the death is only a means to freedom. And of course, death is a physical death we've been talking about here, but the death of all these things, so many things in our lives die. You know, everything is dying all the time. Everything's always changing and disappointing and so on. And why do we always have to think of it as a curse? Why not just think of it as master just moving us forward? You know, these are wonderful stories in that respect. And then it ends with that incredible story about Ram Gopal Mozumdar going down to Dasa Samit God and Mataji floating up from the rock. When we go to India, we go to Dasa Samit Ghat. It's a particular, a Ghat is the place where the steps lead down to the river in Varanasi. And Dasa Samit Ghat is it's considered to be the most holy Ghat in India, in, in Varanasi. So even though there's other places, everybody crowds onto this one. One. And, you know, you walk around there and you kind of want to tap the stone. You know, which one is the one where Mataji is living, but, you know, we've never seen her. I'll just say that. But, you, you, I mean, it's, it's a physical place. It's far away from here, but it's a physical place you can stand. And you can think right here on this spot, somewhere under here, Mataji lives under one of these stones in some kind of a cave, you know, meditating deeply. And I, you, you, the mind boggles. And Ram Gopal, who was a person, just watch this whole story and you have this interplay between these great souls. And then Babaji says, I will stay for the entire cycle of creation. I will be here on this planet helping. And really meditate on that a lot. Babaji is here, right here on this planet. And whosoever utters the name of Babaji, this devotion will attract to himself an instant blessing whosoever, as if it's anybody. Isn't that phenomenal? And we have the good karma to know about it. We're not the only ones who do because millions of people have read this book. But among those millions, it's us. <laughs> good news, huh? Okay? I think that's the end of our story. Okay, see you next week. Tomorrow, today is an, this week is an exceedingly busy week. Tomorrow is September 12th, which is the anniversary of the day that Swami Kriyananda met Yogananda and was initiated as a disciple. So we usually have a very inward meditative ceremony here. It's, a, it's really 
more like a long meditation than anything else. So you can come. We'll probably put some energy into the kind of thing we did tonight too, just because it would be wise to do so. So wander in at 7.30 if you'd like tomorrow.